We invite our children to be dismissed for their children's worship time. The rest of us, we will bow and pray together. Let's bow together. We pray, O God, that as children leave the room, that the childlike wonder might remain. That we might have the capacity to see anew as if for the first time and to be transformed by the power of your love. Revealed finally and fully in your Son, our Savior, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Last Sunday afternoon, a member of our congregation, Margaret Barch, passed away quite unexpectedly. So we had a funeral service here on Thursday in this familiar environment or casket right in front of the communion table. The crowd was made up of some of you who were able to attend, but also a lot of family members, co-workers, people from the Cherokee Triangle, which means there was a lot of different religions all kind of put here together. And then, because it is the Highlands and the Cherokee Triangle, you've got those Baptists who are now Buddhist and Catholics who are now secularists and nihilists, and that's exhausting, as some of you know. And it's, um, it was quite, a, quite an array of people. But we did what we do. We sang the songs of faith, we read, we prayed, we remembered Margaret, and without cramming it down people's throats, we centered it on Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the Son of God. And in the midst of it, from my perch, something happened. Even though we didn't speak the same languages, there was this spirit of unity, there was this presence here in this room that said to a lot of people, there's more to life than this life. There was healing. There was comforting. And I wonder, what is this? I mean, we try to put words to it, but really after 36 years of being a pastor, I still can't explain it with any real clarity. In Marilyn Robinson's Pulitzer Prize winning novel, Gilead, she writes from the voice of an Iowa Presbyterian pastor who describes the day that his soon-to-be wife was baptized. What have I done, he asked. What does this mean? That was the question that came to me often, not because I felt any less certain that I'd done something that means something, but rather because no matter how much I thought and read and prayed, I still felt outside the mystery of it. I think of those words as we come to Transfiguration Sunday. It comes around every year, and as a minister, it kind of taunts me with this mystery because it feels like kind of an artsy movie. It's kind of sci-fi. It's sort of the book of Exodus. It's, It's lots of things all put together into this story. And then on top of it, at the end are Jesus' words, his instructions to the Disciples, as they come down the mountain, don't talk about this. Don't try to explain it. Don't try to rationalize it or categorize it or interpret it or control it. Just kind of shut your pie hole. So what's a preacher to do with such a text? I mean, you can't say nothing. 
I have a pastor friend who tried that one time. He was a PhD student while he was pastoring a small country church and got busy during the week with school requirements and just didn't have time to write a sermon. So Sunday morning came, people sang the songs, got up, time for him to preach. He got up, and he stood in the pulpit and said, Friends, sometimes the Spirit speaks, and sometimes the Spirit is silent. This week, the Spirit's been silent. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> he was met at the door by the same deacon who handed him, his, handed him his paycheck every week, kind of a burly farmer who while handing him his check, said, Brother Pastor, next week, let's make sure the Spirit speaks. (laughs) So, you can't say nothing, but maybe it's best for us just to wonder about this passage together, to point out some things that we can say, kind of around the edges of it, and then see if there's something for us to experience. Because we know experience is finally where it's at. So we know, for example, that Peter, James, and John going with Jesus up the mountain is a signal to us. If you've read the Bible at all, you know that going up the mountain, something's about to happen. When Abraham and Isaac went up the mountain, something happened. When Moses went up the mountain, something happened. When Elijah went up Mount Carmel with the the prophets of Baal, something happened. And so now Peter and James and John with Jesus, it almost feels like a male rite of initiation as they make this journey together. And once they're, the words they use to describe it is light. That this one who said, I am the light of the world, actually became light. He was illumined. He glowed. Thomas Merton, a famous, world-famous monk, had an experience just like that here in Louisville, Kentucky. The words are to part of his story are printed on the cover of the Order of Service. It's a piece of art that is just outside of the sanctuary where he's describing an experience he had at the corner of 4th and Walnut, now what we call 4th and Muhammad Ali Boulevard. During a lunch hour, I assume, people bustling about. This was before the malls were built. This was back in the early 60s, late 50s, and everyone went downtown to shop. So all these people are coming and going out of the shops and back and forth to work, and Merton has this moment. When he sees people and realizes we're all connected. He says, I've I've never experienced this before, but it's like there was a oneness of all things. And then he writes, it cannot be explained. How can I tell these people that they're walking around shining like the sun? Shining like the sun. The wonder and the beauty and the the light of life that is in every person. And I wonder to myself, how did he see that? What happened that day on the Mount of Transfiguration? How did Peter and James and John have the capacity to see what heretofore to them had been darkened? I want to suggest this morning that it would help us to stand on the shoulders of others in order to see not only farther, but deeper. That's what Merton did. 
I think it's what Jesus did. All three gospel writers tell us that Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus and talked with Jesus. Now, if you know your history, you know that Moses and Elijah had been dead for hundreds of years by the time Jesus walked on the earth. And yet, here they are. Moses, the symbol of the law, of order, of people in their earliest iterations trying to understand these mysteries of God at its very basic. You've got Elijah who, as the head of the prophets, takes this basic understanding of God and begins to build on it, begins to elaborate on it. But they've been long gone, but now, here in this moment, they appear with Jesus. And Jesus, rather than just copying them, or repudiating them, saying, hey, I don't need you. I'm better than you all. That's the message he came to abolish, not to bring. Instead, what Jesus does is stand on their shoulders. He builds on what they had to say and do and distills. Now, there's a good Kentucky word, distills. The essence of God's message found in the law, found in the prophets, with his own blend of what God is doing in the world today. Now, if you know anything at all about distilling, you know that distilling gathers from the past but leaves some things behind. I think it's interesting to note that Jesus quotes consistently from his Bible, from the Hebrew Scripture, but he doesn't quote from all of the Hebrew Scripture. It seems that there are things that Jesus opts to leave behind. He quotes, for example, from the book of Leviticus, the third book of the Torah. All these rituals, all these rites, all these commandments, all these prohibitions about things the people of God couldn't do. He quotes none of that. What he quotes is one verse which says this. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. This process of distillation leaves behind all the divisions, all the judgments that might bring forth shame, all the power inequalities that are there. He leaves that behind like so much mash that we can now use to feed the cows and pigs with. And he stands on the shoulders of what's best in Moses and Elijah. And the result? This light, this sacred light that brings clarity and illumination and insight to the people of God. And then Moses and Elijah are gone. And only Jesus remains. Richard Rohr talks about third eye seeing. He uses the example of three people standing on the shore and looking out over the ocean at the sunset. The first person, the first eye seeing, is the person who looks out over the ocean and takes it in for what it is. It's beautiful but really seeks nothing more than just what he sees in that moment. 
The second person, the second eye seeing, is the person who understands and can quantify all the rotations of the planets and the stars, who understands how sunsets work, who understands about the pull of the moon and the tides and all of that, and he's thinking in all of those rational categories. The third eye seeing, though, takes in what the first eye and the second eye sees but sees more, more deeply, more profoundly, more completely in awe of this underlying mystery and energy. And there, for the third eye, is this coherence, this unity, this spaciousness that connects him to everything. Jesus Christ came into this world to invite us into this third eye seeing, it's almost kind of a a second naivete. If the first eye seeing is just seeing it simply and the second eye makes it more complex, the third eye comes back and says, it is simple. It is simply beautiful for it includes all of us. It's not rational, but it's not irrational. We might call it transrational. Thomas Hartman says, what if our thinking minds, where so many of us spend most of our lives, what if our thinking minds aren't tools that can connect us with that deeper consciousness? In fact, they become impediments. They keep us from making that connection. Hartman posits that perhaps that's why when people have near-death experiences, you've heard about these, where people's hearts stop beating and they go somewhere else, that when they have those experiences, their thinking brain shuts down. And in those moments, they experience the light and the bliss and the beauty and the connection. And those who come back from these near-death experiences say there's, there's no words in English to describe this. Hartman says this is what I'm calling consciousness. Or here in church, we might call it salvation. To have our eyes opened. To see this world more holy and holy. And to celebrate what God is always doing. But it's just, it can be disorienting. It can be disorienting. It can be scary. It can be intimidating. And so Simon Peter, representing the very worst and best of humanity throughout his life, Simon Peter tries to gain control of the situation, tries to contain the moment, tries to own it and quantify it. He says, oh, let's make three booths, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for you, Jesus. Simon Peter's like the guy in your family who, when you have one of those beautiful moments of sweetness and light, says, oh, everyone, hold right there while I go get my camera, and we'll try to capture this moment in a picture. This is our temptation to try to mark the moment, to try to calcify it and quantify it. It's a temptation that we might have even in a gathering like this, 
to make worship into a form of static adoration, to institutionalize it, to set it into stone when it's always, always more. And so the divine voice from the cloud calls out, pipe down, Simon Peter. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. There's one more element to this story that we didn't read in our opening sentences. It is the fact that they came down from the mountain. There's always a point where you come down from the mountain and return to the villages. And here I'm going to suggest what may sound to some of you like heresy. We come down the mountain in order to stand on the shoulders of Jesus because we are being called to see farther and deeper for our day, to apply the wisdom and love and community that Jesus Christ opens up for us and apply it to the challenges and needs and opportunities that are before you this very day in your own life, with your own family, at your own place of work, as you read the newspaper, as you watch the television reports about people being killed in acts of anger, as you watch stories of migrants being beaten for trying to be free, as we send our own kids down to Miami, Florida, to Overtown, to care for kids who haven't had a chance in life. This is what it means to be the church. The church is not a historical society that keeps a nice building open to remember the Jesus who used to come long ago. The church are the people who find the capacity to stand on Jesus' shoulders and create this school of radical, life-altering love. Love that is bathed in this light that is Jesus himself. Have you ever tried to stand on someone's shoulders? It's not easy. It requires practice, strength, balance, endurance. It requires teamwork, some give and take. It requires an enormous amount of trust. And finally, it requires a willingness to see the world differently. You're up higher. You see more. It's a different vantage point. It's an odd vantage point from the rest of the world. Which is to say those who follow Jesus see the world differently. I often quote Flannery O'Connor, that great southern novelist who took the words of Jesus and amended them slightly, saying, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you odd. But that's okay. It's not about you. It's not about elevating you. It's not about a contest. It's rather about a calling. To be a people willing to stand on the shoulders of Jesus. Who calls us. Who calls us over and says to you and to me, Hey, get up here. You've got to see this. You've got to see this. It's a beautiful world. 
to the glory of God. Let's pray together. Give us courage in this moment to be willing to stand on your shoulders, O Christ, and see the world as you illumine it. And as we do, may may we take our experiences and incarnate them, make them flesh again, that your kingdom may come and your will may be done on earth as in heaven. On this Transfiguration Sunday, we pledge our allegiance to you, to your glory now and forever. Amen. Our hymn of response is printed in the order of service today. And as we sing, it's an opportunity for us to think ourselves about what it means to stand on Jesus' shoulders. What might it mean for you? And might you need a community who's being trained to do that very thing? We would be that church for you if you feel called. As we stand together, let's make our commitments. I'll stand at the front.